We are into week number four of our series, Characters of Christmas, where we've been looking at some of the very familiar characters that are involved in the Christmas story. And very fitting this week, as we're going to look at the wise men, one of my daughters was in a Christmas production where she was a wise man. And that's kind of funny, but when, you know, the majority of your actors are females, you get cast that way sometimes. And as she was telling us about her role, she named off the name of her character and the other wise men, and she looked at us very disappointed when she's like, you don't know the names of the wise men? And then she was also very disappointed to learn, no, no one knows the name of the wise men. The names that you know are made up. And, uh, you know, it's a fitting role for her because she's very smart-mouthed, and so the wise character just goes right in with it. She's very intelligent, very sweet as well. Um, but it, it's interesting because as I talked with her, I said there's a lot we don't know about the wise men, the magi in Scripture. We usually think of there being three of them, but we think there's three of them because that's how many are in the song. We three kings of, you, you know the song, but... That's not in scripture. And in fact, there, you know, some people do theorize that some of the wise men may have been women. And the reason they think that is because when they got to Jerusalem, they actually stopped and asked for directions. <laughs> right, women? Yeah. But some people refute that claim because they also note that the wise men were right on time when they got there. Right, men? I'm an equal opportunity pick on people. Don't worry. If I can pick on the men, I can pick on the women too a little bit. But what we know from culture and what we know from history is that it was, they were people who were not only intelligent, <clears throat> that they saw the signs, but they were, they were Eastern, most likely Persian. It was more than three, most likely, but it could have been two. It could have been more than than, than three. We don't, we don't know exactly, but we're going to look at a couple things from the passage that surrounds the wise men. They're very important in interaction with Jesus and what it meant to him and his family and the things that we can draw from it. If you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. I better get in scripture before I get in too much trouble here. Um, and we'll put this up on the screen as I read it. And it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, as we get into this passage, we hear Bethlehem and we think little town of Bethlehem and the songs that, that we've heard. But I'm going to tell you, the further you get into the study of Scripture, specifically the Old Testament as well as the New, when you read this and you, you know some things about Bethlehem, there's part of your mind that just goes like, oh, that would make complete sense. And I know that so much of that is under the surface. And so before we even get into some of what's happening in the passage, I want to give you just some background highlights of Bethlehem and its importance. One of the first places that we see Bethlehem is when Jacob had to bury Rachel in the Old Testament. 
When he had to bury his love, she was buried. Uh, when he had to bury his love, she was buried at Bethlehem. Ruth and Boaz lived in Bethlehem. And when you think back to that story and the significance of a Gentile woman marrying into a Jewish family, that happened in Bethlehem. Israel's, one of their greatest kings, King David, he was shepherding his sheep in Bethlehem. And in the the book of Micah in chapter five, verse two, and we'll put this up on the screen, the passage references it, but it has that prophecy that points to Bethlehem. And so even before these times came, Micah chapter five, verse two says, but as, as for you, Bethlehem, uh, I'm gonna read from the NASB, it's what's in my notes. Bethlehem, Ephrathath, you too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will come forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His times of coming forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. The prophecy in the book of Micah that that put the spotlight on Bethlehem, it didn't just say that there would be one special person born in Bethlehem, but it identified the fact that the one who would be born would be from God, born to you, Bethlehem, and his days were from eternity. The book of Micah nails the fact that this is not just a special person, but this is God in flesh, and he would be given to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem, it, it just sits about five plus miles from Jerusalem. As we read the passage and it talks about the Magi stopping at Jerusalem, on a clear day, they could, Jerusalem could, could see the hills of Bethlehem. And so it, they weren't far off when they stopped in, in Jerusalem. And the meaning of the name Bethlehem, it, it, it's two Hebrew words. Bet means house and Leshem means bread which when they're put together, it means house of bread. Now, I, I just, I have to stop into that point. Why, why does it mean house of bread? One of the ways that Jesus described himself is that he was the bread, that he was the bread sent down from heaven. There's a contrast to when Israel needed supernatural provision of food and God sent manna from heaven that sustained them. And that picture is woven into the tapestry of what God did through generations to when God sent Jesus to earth. The bread of life was sent to the house of bread. And anyone who would have been planning or expecting and preparing, it's one of the reasons why the Magi stopped at Jerusalem, the capital city, is that if God was going to send a savior, it would surely be to the most important part. But God said, no, I'm gonna work in a place that seems too small for a blessing this big. And God sent his savior to Bethlehem. I I, I wanna touch a little bit on on the importance of, of Ruth in, in Boaz, in their connection of the, what they did was happening in Bethlehem. Because when we look at the teachings of Jesus, one of the ways that he summarizes the reason that he came to earth in Luke 19.10 was for the son of man came to seek and save those who were lost. Jesus' life, his miracles, his teachings, his ministry, it was focused not just on the Hebrew people, but being a light to the entire world. And the Hebrew people, they were very insulated from all the other nations. They were not supposed to marry from the other nations. They were not supposed to receive their cultural traditions. They were supposed to be separate. But there was one city and one story that highlighted the Gentiles being connected into the Hebrew people. And that was the story of Ruth and Boaz. 
And so one of the things that would come to a Hebrew person's mind when Bethlehem came up is that is one place where the Gentiles connected in. And just so you know the importance of the relationship of Ruth and Boaz, her son was Obed. Obed's son, her grandson, was Jesse. And the child of Jesse was David, King David. And then from the line of David, we see the birth of Jesus. And so when we say Bethlehem, we don't just think little night, but, or, you know, little quiet night, little town. We need to think of the history. This is where God first began this connection into some of the Gentile people that was so important that it was included in the genealogy of Christ himself. Bethlehem is not just a city, but it's referred to as the, as the house of bread. It, it, it was planned for generations that this would be the birthplace of Christ. It was foretold through Micah. And then so we, when we get to this arrival point where the Magi are seeking the place that Jesus would be born, they went to the wrong town because Bethlehem was just too small. It wouldn't be a starting place. It's little and it's unlikely. And do you recognize that that is how God loves to work in earth? He loves to put focus on the weak places. He loves to make his power perfect in our weakness. Even thinking back to the great-grandson of Ruth, when, when David was out taking care of the sheep and God was replacing Saul as king over Israel when he sent Samuel out to go and find David. He was sent and David was the smallest of the sons of the family that, that Samuel was sent to. When God chose him, he was the smallest. And then when God began using David, there, he, one of the first ways that he used him was against Goliath. And God said, here is, is an obstacle that's huge. In fact, all of the other soldiers think that this obstacle is too big to fight. And God chose to work through someone who was so small. And the way that God used David to defeat Goliath, it wasn't through a huge spear, it was through a small rock and a sling. There's something about the way that God chose to work from the beginning with the Messiah and through so much of history is that he works in these small and, and almost insignificant ways where it just seems impossible. And why does he do that? Because God is going to magnify his glory. He's going to make his name known to the kingdoms. And this is an important starting point because that's what God wanted to communicate by choosing Bethlehem instead of a royal palace, instead of a capital city. He went to a small city where he had worked before. And this concept needs to flow over into your understanding of what God wants to do in your life. Because as soon as he begins to speak and guide and lead you, whenever you have that creeping fear and that voice that, that says, well, I'm just... I'm I'm not smart enough to do that, God. I'm not strong enough. I'm not experienced enough. That, that objection that you bring before God should almost just be a confirmation that this is God speaking because he's gonna work through people who would say, I'm not good enough to do that for you, God. I can't pull this off without you, God. And then he says, perfect, you're right where I need you to be because as I show up, all of the glory and the honor should go to me, not to you. God likes to work through these small towns and he chose Bethlehem. And it's really interesting that in this passage that he chose to work through Gentiles. 
As a Hebrew reader is hearing this story, there is so much pride. And some of it should be there. They're like, we're the people chosen by God. God selected our nation from all of the nations and he is blessing us and he is working through us. But as they're reading this, okay, so it's Bethlehem. It's the city where a Moabite woman became part of the royal lineage. And that's kind of strange, but okay, God's gonna work through that. But he's also working through these magi. They're not even followers of God. One of, one of the traditional beliefs regarding the Magi, and I want to tell you, this is not in Scripture, so you can take this or leave it, but one of the traditional things that's believed about, how did they know to look for the Messiah? Well, when Daniel and the other young Hebrew men were taken into captivity in Babylon, and they were established within the, the palace, and they were serving there, they would have recorded the Hebrew writings and teachings there as well. And when Persia defeated Babylon and replaced their government, those writings would have remained and they would have been passed down from the generations as well as other books. And so they would have been looking for this powerful coming king because they're aware of political rat, um, political enemies. And so they're watching out for this future thing that might happen. And as they start seeing some of the signs that were described in Daniel, like the star that would rise, they looked for it and they saw it and they followed it. And so that, that's how tradition says that the wise men knew. But once again, that, that's extra biblical. That's just tradition that says that. And so the Hebrew people see these, these, these Persian, these Eastern men that were coming in to, to worship and they're referred to as magi. Uh, magi is where we get the word magic from. And it's not to say that they were magical, but it's that they were wise and they, they looked towards things that other people could not understand. One of the direct ways that word is translated is fire worshipers. Um, and so we don't have a lot of clarity about exactly what the relationship with God was, except for they knew to look for the signs. And I, I find this in, incredibly, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's not surprising, but it's almost disappointing that when they arrived to Jerusalem, they had been traveling a far ways. And they've been seeing these signs and they are far, they, they most likely spent weeks traveling and they arrived to Jerusalem and they ask this question almost with expectation of where the king that was born. And they ask it of the ruling party and then it gets asked to the religious rulers as well. And their expectation was that when they got there, other people would know. And there's a contrast that happens between these people from the East who were wise and the political and religious rulers. The people from the East, they came searching for, for a king because they saw the signs, but the people who were close by had no clue what was going on. And what had a tendency of happening then still happens now. Ecclesiastes kind of says it this way, that there's nothing new under the sun. It's so easy to be close to religious gatherings and religious people and people of authority and power, but completely miss the reality of what God is doing. It's easy to have a position where you appear to have it all together, but your position is held completely separate from a relationship with God. And God was doing something miraculous that anyone who studied Daniel from, from the Magi's perspective could have and should have seen. But when they got there, no one else knew. 
In fact, they, they call it together in, in, in verse two when they say, where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose. We've come to worship him. And it says, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Their feeling is contrasted by the feeling of the Magi because their reaction was fear. Herod, I can understand because Herod was unjust. Herod would show himself to be a murderer because his fear of this king that would be, would be born was almost similar to what, it was a shadow of what happened with Moses where he tried to have Jesus killed by putting to death all male boys that were under two years old when this occurrence happened. The religious rulers, it says, and the people in Jerusalem, they were disturbed as well. But the Magi, their response to the situation was joy. And so I just, I want to, I want to get introspective just for a moment here and just make sure we wake up. Are we seeking after what God is doing or do we have an agenda and a plan that we would be upset if he interrupted it? It, it's a, it, maybe it seems a weird question to ask as church people, as the pastor, but I never want to get to a point where I say, I have such a good business plan, I have such a good idea of what I want to do as the leader of this church, that if God starts to do something else, I would be disturbed by it. And, and I know that sounds strange, but it's a reality. We get so caught up, and this is how we do worship. This is how we do music. This is how we do preaching. This is how I run my week. I do my church stuff on Sunday morning and it needs to stay in its neat, tidy box and it does not spill over into Monday. We can get into these routines where we put God into this box and when he starts to break down the walls of that box, we get a little freaked out by it. Just even the, oh man, when it says that they came to worship Jesus in this passage, What it means in scripture when it says worship, it doesn't mean, you know, we sang songs and we kept our arms crossed and we kind of stared at the words and we sang the one we liked, but we stayed quiet during the ones we didn't and we were bothered because this instrument was louder than this instrument and I prefer this singer over this singer and so I stay quiet during those songs, but I sing and I lift my hands a little bit during the ones that I know and I like and they play on Caleb and that's what worship is. Now when it talks about bringing worship, it's actually describing, like, when they brought their worship before Jesus, like, they, they got not just down on their knees, but they, they got down on their face. When I think about them bringing worship, it's not just what they did when they got there, but we're talking about weeks away from home. Weeks away from family, weeks away from business. For what? For the opportunity to worship the Savior, the Messiah, the anointed one, the coming King. What obstacles are we willing to walk through to bring our worship to God? Oh, the song is off. I can't sing. I can't worship. The song isn't what I like. They're, they're off beat a little bit. Don't they have a click or something like that? Like, how come the music's not just a little bit better so I can worship better? Worship is not just an emotion. 
It's not just something that you get swept in, but it's something that you bring with you. Nothing that happens on this stage or the off-key singing person sitting next to you should be strong enough to to distract or destroy the worship that you bring to God. And these wise men, these people from the East, they're, they're coming through and they're expecting the religious people to be ready, the rulers to be ready, and they don't know. They're expecting it'll be the capital city. We're, we're gonna go into verse seven. It, it says that when Herod called a private meeting with the wise men, he learned from them the time that the star first appeared. And he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this, the wise men went on their way and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. It's interesting because Herod has an interest in knowing where the child is because he wants to eliminate an enemy. Some of the religious rulers might've been curious to know as well and wanted to hear from them, but they didn't know enough to join the party and join the search. There's a lot of people who will see the signs that there is a God there. They will see the signs that God is at work there and they might be interested to ask questions. They might have their own motivations. They might have a desire to destroy what God is doing. But most people will just be curious about the signs and never pursue it. The wise men were people who said, we are going to find this. I I kind of think through so much of their journey to arrive at Jerusalem and they're following a star, which could have been, it's theorized that it was a comet. It's theorized that it's an aberration of a star that would be there the whole time. It's theorized that it was like Aurora Borealis where where there was, you know, light reflecting in the atmosphere that changed color. We're not exactly sure what it looked like, but we know that it was bright enough to guide them. But we also see that it happened in a way that I, I, I I would make... The, the guess that during the daytime, they may not have been able to see it. They got to Jerusalem and they weren't sure where to go. So the light wasn't there all the time. Could you imagine being on like a three-week journey following a star and losing sight of it? Like in the day? I wonder what it would be like to be like, what if the star doesn't come out tonight? And we've been traveling for three weeks to find this king that might be born, this Messiah that might be here. And what if the star's not here? What do we do then? They get to Jerusalem. Nobody knows where the star is. And then it says that when they see where the star was, they were filled with joy. Like, okay, they they finally reached the point where they have it, they see it. They're one of the few people who went after finding the star. And however many was with their party, I just can't, like, I can't stop questioning why was there not more? Why, why did religious leaders not go? Why did Herod not go right there? Why, why did the Jewish people from the temple not go? Like when Jerusalem is only five miles from Bethlehem, why weren't there more people at this experience? It just seems like something you'd get drawn into. You see the star, you see the signs. People were just too busy for it. And the, their perspective was, I have other stuff going on. Some people are willing to pay the cost to see what God is doing, and some people are just too caught up in their own. And I have four kids, and I stay busy, and we're, you know, both of us work in our household. I I get how you could just miss a moment like this. But I think the story of the Magi, the wise men, is one of those reminders of like, are you willing when you see God doing something to just stop for a minute? When you see a spark of something, when you ask someone how they're, 
doing and you can tell they just lied and you feel the spirit of God just like move in your heart like, hey, press into that a little bit and you speak back to the spirit of God. I don't have time for someone else's issues right now. It's one of those things, it's like we miss getting to see God heal. We have this perspective that I need to get done what I want to do and we just miss, okay, what is God actually doing? Perspective is powerful. Perspective, if your perspective is hurt and broken on the way that the world looks, you're gonna miss out on lots of things. I came across the, the, a story in the news, like two days ago this popped up. Um, there's a basketball player, um, Tyrell Terry. He, he's a young guy. He's been in the NBA for two years. You know, don't feel too bad for him. He made $3.1 million in those two years that he's been in the NBA. That's tough, I know. But the anxiety of playing in the NBA, the anxiety of being on that stage, could not overpower the fact that he was gonna make $1.7 million next year, and he quit. He's like, I I can't do this anymore, which props to him, because if it's not good for your mental health and safety, then get out of it. It doesn't matter how much money you get. But his perspective of what it was like to live under that spotlight was, it's too hard. The pressure's too high. It reminded me so much of a story from before with another basketball player, Shaquille O'Neal. Now, Terrell Terry, his life's a little bit different. He's raised by a single mom. Like, he, he's a great story that he made it through. He held it together. He got into the league. He made some money, and now he can quit and live comfortably. That, that's great for him. But Shaquille O'Neal, when he started off his career, he had a night in New York where he basically fell apart on the basketball court. And his dad called him up and was like, what happened out there with you tonight? Like, that's not how you play. And, he, and Shaquille told his dad, he said, the pressure was just too much for me, like playing in front of New York, like I just couldn't handle it. And he said, well, be at my doorstep at 5 a.m. tomorrow. I, I don't, you must have been a good dad to continue to be able to boss around a dude who's like seven foot 30, like however tall Shaq is, I don't know. But Shaq listened to his dad and was at the doorstep at 5 a.m. He said, get in the car. Put him in the car. I still don't know how Shaq fits in cars, but he put him in the car. They drive into the city. And his dad stops in front of a homeless couple with children. And before he gets out of the car, he says, you, you say you're under pressure. You're so spoiled. You, you, fly pri- you fly in private planes. You live in a huge house. You don't have to worry about where your next meal comes. You look out that window. They don't know how they're going to eat today. They don't have a place to live. They have kids they have to take care of. That's pressure. He said, get out of the car. We're going to do something for them. And together they got that family into an apartment. They made some calls for him, got him a job, got him started, got his food filled with fridge, got him taken care of. And it's interesting how two guys who are in a very similar situation, one of them was forced into a situation where he said, your perspective needs to change. Your situation isn't the problem. Your perspective of the situation is the problem. You're giving way too much weight to the, bot- to the score of this basketball game when other people are out here struggling to live and die. In a situation that is breaking some people's heart and breaking some people's minds, the reason that it's breaking is because it's their perspective, how much weight they give to the situation. We give some things power over our heart and mind, and that situation does not deserve power over your heart and mind. 
There are things that you've said, this is so important. If this doesn't work out, everything falls apart. And what God is doing in your life and around your life and in the city and in this church, we give it such little weight. And we have our priorities mixed up. We're missing out on these moments where we get to see the light of heaven shining on earth and working because we're so caught up on things that won't matter next month, next year, or in eternity. You have the opportunity to live your life in a way that the things that you do, the things that you say, what you invest your time and your resources into, it will matter forever. But our perspective has been broken and you often need someone who will step into your situation and shake you up a little bit and say the anxiety that you're feeling, it doesn't deserve to have that big of a role in your life. You're missing out on seeing God do things. You're missing out on investing yourself in the right place. And our perspective needs to change because that's what happened in in the palace in Jerusalem. That's what happened in the synagogue in Jerusalem. Their perspective was on the wrong thing. And the Magi say, the only thing that matters right now is seeing where this light takes us. And they got to experience this amazing moment of joy. One of the interesting things that's argued about with this whole situation is exactly when did they get here? I just wanna speak to that for a minute. It doesn't theologically matter too much. Some people say Jesus was about two years old. Some people say it was the day after Jesus was born. And the reality is, um, just so you know how to interact with some of the evidence, when it says that he was a child in this passage, that's the same Greek word that's used for baby. When they describe John the Baptist as a baby, it's the same Greek word. You're seeing some assumptions in your Bible translator when you read child there instead of infant or baby, just so you know. It, it could have been the next day. It could have been two years. We don't have a strong enough argument to say it's exactly this way. But what we do know whether it was the day after or two, year, two years down the road. And you'll notice it says they're in the house. It's mo- more than likely that family members or other people, once they saw this baby was born in a manger, they said, you can't be out there. We're gonna move someone out of our house. We're gonna make space for you. And they were moved in, even if it was the next day. But no matter what, when this child was born, there was a prayer and a concern that would have been on Mary and Joseph's heart of how are we gonna make ends meet on this? And these magi that God moved in the heart to bring their, bring their worship. And band, you guys can come out. I see that I'm at double zeros now. I'll, I'll wrap this thing up. The magi, in their act of worship and doing what brought them joy, they also brought provision for someone else. And I think that that concept, I, I see that concept ring true. That when you worship God and you're willing to walk in obedience to him, he will send you to someone to make a difference to them. He will give you a word of hope. He will give you a word of encouragement. He will give you a word of correction that when you bring it to someone, it will heal and provide hope for them. Don't think that living your life happens in in isolation. Like if I choose to live in sin, if I choose to disobey God, that that doesn't really affect anyone else. That That is a lie. When you begin to live for God, your influence is tremendous. The family members, the coworkers, the friends, the neighbors that you impact when you live your life for God, it will meet a need and a prayer in someone else's life. And the weight of that should encourage your heart to say, not only do I get to experience the joy of being where God's at, I get to experience the joy of seeing him work through my life and the lives of other people. 
joy and worship should be a motivating factor. But the, the last thing that I want to quickly pull from this passage is I know I'm, I'm a little over time. There's joy, like I remember when I first became a Christian, there was this decision point where it's like, I thought I was dealing with heaven and hell. And when I said yes, because I, I wanted to have security about eternity, God filled my heart with such like joy and new life and excitement and encouragement. Like it, I didn't expect all that. Like it was amazing when I would go into church and we would worship God. It was just like this river of refreshment and passion that would just always just wash over me. And the, those moments of worship in that first year of following Christ, like it was incredible. But I remember there came this time where it's like, Every time I was in church, it was just this amazing sensation and feeling and joy that I had in worship. And there was this time where I came into church and it was like that sensation, that emotionalism that I had, it was just gone. And I was like, God, where did you go? Like, did I do something? Is there a sin I need to confess? Like, like what, what happened that, that that excitement and passion like changed some? And I felt I felt this just whisper from God that said, I'm still here. And it's not that you did anything, but I'm teaching you a new lesson. That you're praising me, you're not praising a feeling. Your worship is supposed to be brought to me. You're not just supposed to be carried into it. And I remember in that season of learning to praise God, before the sensation was there. I remember that season learning to praise God before he answered the prayers because it's easy to pray God when you just get swept up into the emotion. It's easy to praise God when he answers a huge prayer and there's deliverance and you, you see his hand at work. But there will come a time in your relationship with God where it's gonna be like this moment where they brought their worship before the baby Jesus because Jesus, he was there in the manger and he, he was, you know, may be quiet as the song sings, but he hadn't delivered the Sermon on the Mount yet. He hadn't done anything that was really worthy of praise yet. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He would later be wrapped in grave cloths, and then he would be later wrapped in glory as God defeated sin, death, and the grave through him, but he hadn't done that yet. But gold and incense and myrrh, things of value were brought before him, but he hadn't done anything yet. And maturity in the faith is recognizing even when I don't have the sensation of the moment, God is fully worthy of my praise. Even before the answer to prayer comes, even if the answer to that prayer never comes, he is fully worthy of my praise. Maturity in the faith, I'm going to pick on the men again before I close this message. It's saying, I will carry my worship into the house of God no matter what is going on. And I will not be mute in my faith like so many men are in our nation. I will not be emotionless in my faith like so many men are because God is worthy to be praised. In my worship of him, it might be costly. It might be time consuming. 
It might mean I need to step away from things that I would like to be doing, but that's the kind of worship that God deserves. It's the kind of worship that they brought in this instance. But in the church today, God is worthy. And I want to challenge you, I want to encourage you that as we approach this Christmas season, before we even see his hand move, let's move our hands in worship. Whether in singing or in service to the city and to his church, let's bring our worship before God. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you are worthy. Jesus, you are the joy the world needs. You are the hope that changes stories. And where our perspective has been broken, we pray that you would heal it. Where we have hesitant to worship you, may we worship in freedom and in celebration of who you are. And where there is concern and worry, we ask for your healing and we know that you are good. We know that you act. So we will follow wherever you lead. It's in your son's name we pray.